Hi, I'm Ashley. I'm one of the producers here at Pitchfork Economics, and we want your questions for an upcoming AMA episode with Nick and Goldie. What do you want to know about the economic effects of the coronavirus crisis? Tell us by calling and leaving a voicemail at 731-388-9334. That's 731-388-9334. Oh, and the deadline for these voicemails is by the end of the day on March 31st. Thanks. Why is it that when poor people get richer, that threatens the economy, but when rich people get richer, that must be an unalloyed good? It doesn't take a whole lot of money to keep a bad idea alive. The marketplace for ideas is pretty thinly financed, and it really only takes a handful of malign billionaires to keep bad ideas in circulation. How do we contribute towards your fight against zombies? How do we kill some zombies? I mean, the whole point about zombies is actually you really can never fully kill them. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. A pointed conversation about who gets what and why with one of America's most provocative capitalists. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Today, we get to talk to definitely one of our favorite and certainly one of the highest profile economists in the world, Paul Krugman. He writes a column in the New York Times. Really the one of the foremost economic communicators in the country, in the yeah, world. In the world. Over yeah. the past 20 years. Yeah. I think we almost always agree with him, mm-hmm. right, uh, directionally. Although uh, what will be interesting to explore is how he comes to the same conclusions that we do. I mean, it's safe to say that our positions can be even more extreme than his. Of course, we're more extreme than almost everybody. Uh, we're not extreme. <laughs> it's everybody else who's extreme. Yeah, that's right. We're, yeah. we're the centrists. Exactly. We're right and in everybody the else is, yeah, I, I forgot. But it will be uh, really interesting to talk to him about his book, his new book, Arguing with Zombies. To be clear, most this is a collection of essays. So a right. lot of this, I didn't remember a lot of the columns, but I almost certainly read many of them before. And, um, you know, it do- sort of documents his longstanding fight against just neoliberal nonsense. Right. The ideas that dominate the uh, economic and policy debate that have no basis in reality. Correct. And, you know, we call it trickle-down economics. He calls it zombie ideas. I think we're roughly talking about the same thing. Should be a great conversation. We're very lucky to get to talk to him. Hi there. I'm Paul Krugman, uh, professor of economics at the Graduate Center of the City of New York, columnist for the New York Times, and uh, author of Arguing with Zombies. Let's start with you just sort of explaining. Tell us about your book, but also speak to the title of the book and why you chose to title it in that way. Yeah, some years ago, actually, before I started writing for the Times, I ran across the term zombie ideas. It was actually in a paper about Canadian healthcare, but it was about things that people believe uh, in the political sphere that are demonstrably false. You could, they've just been proved wrong by evidence over and over again, and yet they just keep on, they stay out there, they continue you know, shambling along, eating people's brains. And it struck me 
particularly with us putting this book together, much of which is, is columns written over a period of 20 years or so, that the same bad ideas just keep on coming at us, that the columns that makes that point out some nonsense in you know, 2004 um, are followed by columns that point out the same nonsense in 2019. And you'd have to try to understand why it is that bad ideas just keep on coming. Yeah. Why don't you describe some of those zombie ideas? No, well, we can start with one. Uh, just today, uh, Steve Mnuchin said this, and this is a quote, we still think the tax cuts will pay for themselves. Uh, zombie <laughs> yeah, idea? That, that, is, that is America's leading zombie. may not be the most important, but that's the one that has had the biggest impact on our politics. Uh, the claim that tax cuts, particularly tax cuts for rich people, you know, are magic. They cause incredible things to happen. Right. And the money comes flowing in and they pay for themselves. And the number of cases in which that has actually happened, uh, and we've tried it many times, is zero. It just has it has never happened. It never works. Uh, but it's completely taken over the Republican Party. You know, each time it fails, it just seems to get stronger. Yeah. So take us through some of the other zombie ideas, the landscape of economic zombieism. The most important, because it may destroy all of us, is climate denial. Maybe 30 years ago, you could argue, okay, I don't really, I'm not fully convinced, even though even then the evidence was, was starting to get clear. But at this point, to deny man-made climate change is, it's basically impossible if you pay any attention to the facts. And yet, I just saw, as, as of uh, just before the midterms, uh, 73% of Republicans in the Senate denied that man-made climate change is happening and basically viewed it as some kind of giant hoax by the scientific community. So that just keeps on going, and and the, the you know every time there's a there's a cold snap, they say, see, global warming is a, is 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 fake. So that's a zombie that, again, that's that that's an existential threat zombie that can not only eat our brains but can eat civilization. The idea that government debt is the most important, critical, scariest thing there is that everything else has to take second place to. Uh, to holding down the level of government debt, of course, unless there's a Republican in power who wants to cut taxes. But the obsession over government debt, which completely dominated conversation in Washington for several years in the middle of the last decade, uh, is a zombie because it's been shown wrong again and again, and then it still just keeps on cropping up. Um, I, I can go on, but uh, you go there on. Are... <laughs> <laughs> well, all right. Um, Health care. It's amazing how often, even now, I run into people who uh, who insist that providing some form of universal health care uh, where everybody in the country is covered is impossible, uh, that it's, it's, it's inconceivably expensive or it just doesn't work or it would destroy the economy, which is something that they managed to do, something they managed to believe, even though every other advanced country has it. <laughs> and uh, the... Uh, that sort of went along with, I mean, the uh, the, the view that that Obamacare, which was a, a sort of a half half a loaf, but yeah, half, half measure, a whole lot better than yeah. none, yeah, yeah, got 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 us, uh, you know, basically half the way to universal coverage and uh, and saved a lot of people's lives, including even some people I know, uh, but that that was a massive failure, um, and the people who predicted that the number of people of uninsured Americans would go up and that the cost of health care would, would soar uh, were completely wrong. 
year after year and just kept on saying the same thing. Um, so there, there was a, that was, that was a zombie, uh, is a zombie still going on. And there are things that are more sort of maybe things that are of a little more interest to economists, although there was a time when everybody on, well, I, I would get, I would get mail from people who say, I, I'm a little puzzled. Uh, why hasn't inflation taken off? Cause all the experts said that inflation was going to soar under Obama and, uh, I said, you know, those weren't actual experts. The belief that printing money always, under all circumstances, leads to hyperinflation, is something that doesn't seem to be doesn't seem to go away, no matter how wrong it turns out to be, again and again. I'm sure I'm, uh, that, that I'm missing some, but that's just kind of a, a quick tour of zombie land. Yeah. Well, we'll throw you one of our favorites. Yes. Uh, one of our big issues in the office is the minimum wage. Uh, raising the minimum wage—that's a surefire job killer. Is that a zombie? Uh, it's turning out that it is a zombie, and that it, now it's not quite as as bad in a way uh, as some of the others. Because they, um, thirty years ago, you might have made that case. Thirty years ago, uh, uh, economic textbooks uh, argued that minimum wages would reduce unemployment. It's kind of become one hundred and one, uh, and it's, it's only when evidence started to come in, which wasn't that easily done, because trouble with economics is they're always doing lots of things at the same time. So isolating the effects of any one policy change is hard. But we, some economists realize that actually in the case of minimum wages, we get a lot of, of natural experiments where one state raises its minimum wage and the neighboring state does not, uh, or in some cases a city raises its minimum wage. And it's now there's just overwhelming evidence that at least within the range that we see in the United States, Minimum wages don't raise unemployment. They don't. They don't cause jobs. Uh, they, yeah. I think every economist. I think every everyone has to say, look, there's got to be some point at which, uh, at which it becomes a problem. That a thirty dollar an hour minimum wage is probably going to uh, have some negative employment effects. But there's absolutely no evidence that a that raising it from from seven seventy five to twelve or even fifteen is likely to have serious effects. And and we keep on getting experiments. Uh, I'm not sure of exactly where you're calling from, but Seattle, Washington, home of the $15 minimum wage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So I was about yeah, to say, yeah, we I mean, did and, it. <laughs> and the, the Seattle experiment, there were a lot of extreme dire predictions yes, there. Yes, there were. And if anybody has admitted having gotten it wrong, uh, I haven't seen it. So, uh, so that zombie is still shambling along, eating people's brains, despite as as clear. This is as good as a, a as close to an actual experiment in economics and economic policy as you're ever going to get. Yeah, the the minimum wage in Seattle, Washington today, by the way, is sixteen dollars and thirty nine cents, plus tips. To yeah. be clear, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, no, not only is the minimum wage sixteen thirty nine, there's actually no tip penalty here. And, and they can't hire enough workers. Yeah, and, and unemployment is at record lows. Actually, let's just dive in right here, Paul, because I think this is this is where our conversation, I think, can get quite interesting. So the first thing is that I would dispute your claim that if the minimum wage or wages rise, employments fall as a zombie idea is less important than some of the other ones. Because Oh, I wouldn't have said yeah. it's less important. I would have said it's, it's uh, less unforgivable. That there was a time when you know, simple economic models did seem to suggest that raising the minimum wage would reduce employment. Of course, that was a long time ago. And at, at a certain point, if if the evidence tells you that your theory is wrong, you say, okay, then then the theory is wrong. And 
I sometimes get people who say, you know, you wrote in 1991 that raising the minimum wage could cost jobs. Yeah. And I said, yeah, I have some some evidence has come in since then. When when I get new facts, I change my views. What do you do? Yeah. <laughs> you know? um, right. So. Uh, and, then, and the truth is we have now at this point a lot of facts. So it's I'm just saying that there was never, ever any reason to believe that tax cuts would pay for themselves. Once upon a time, it was a uh, understandable that some people thought that raising minimum, minimum wages would cost jobs. But really, we now have decades of carefully collected and assessed evidence on this. And in, in the United States, they don't. And yet the Econ 101 textbooks that are being used today still use the minimum wage as the illustration of the supply curve. Yeah, I I, I will say, uh, as an, the author of an Econ 101 textbook, uh, there is a problem uh, that you face, which is that you, they're kind of mandatory. We need to talk about what are the effects of price floors, um, and there aren't there are hardly any price floors in, in, in America. Uh, so the minimum wage is pretty much it. And then you kind of get yourself into this sort of saying, well, if the minimum wage were high enough, then probably it would reduce employment. But yeah, it's, uh, uh, I mean, this was one of the huge surprises. Uh, usually um, economic evidence, if there's something that seems obvious, usually the evidence says, yeah, actually it was obvious. This is one of those cases where it turned out that it was really not at all what even you know fairly left-leaning economists expected to find. Here's what I want to just drill in on, though. The minimum wage has been raised in the United States of America 22 times federally in our nation's history. And you can actually go back and look at each one of the—to say nothing of the hundreds of times locally. Each one of these events was a natural experiment— and you can actually go back and look at the data back to, was it 1938 when the FLSA mm -hmm. was first enacted? Yeah. And, and there was zero evidence in each one of those cases that the minimum wage killed jobs. And what I found frustrating being on, and you may not know this, but we were on the front lines of the whole $15 minimum wage fight. We picked the number, we built the narratives, fought the campaigns. What, what I found so shocking was that everyone treated this minimum wage increase as the first ever in American history, even my left-leaning economist friends. I kept on going back to them and say, saying, but we have done this dozens of times before. And there has never been evidence that the minimum wage killed jobs, ever, anywhere. So why, why today must we prove again that this modest increase in wages for poor people is a threat to the economy. And that's what I want to zoom in on, is why, why is it that there is an industry in economics devoted to assuring us that if we make poor people slightly richer, that will not kill jobs? But there are no studies going on, for instance, examining the job-killing impacts of Jeff Bezos's $130 billion wealth. Because surely it must be true that if Jeff Bezos' $130 billion of wealth was spread over millions of other workers, that would create jobs. What's super interesting to me is why we look at one thing, but not the other. Like, why is it that when poor people get richer, that threatens the economy, but when rich people get richer, that must be an unalloyed good? That perspective I yeah, find well, puzzling. Yeah, well, take an example that is, that is is uh, definitely one that that I think about a lot is we 
there's endless uh, obsession with the notion that that aid to the poor is going to reduce their incentives to work hard. Yes. Nobody ever seems to worry about inherited wealth reducing the incentives of, of of heirs to work hard. The full Bernie is that all of this is is about the influence of of, of rich people, of millionaires and billionaires, and that's not true. A lot of it is. Yeah. Um, and it's it's definitely the case. So it's the the tax cuts pay for themselves thing is kept alive entirely because it serves the interests of people with uh, who benefit from uh, with the tax of, cuts. Of, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, who benefit from the tax cuts. Yeah. It's, it's it's entirely supported by billionaire funded uh, institutions and and the and the people who propound it are are never people who have any kind of independent uh, reputation for economic research. It's all it's, it's propaganda. Yes. It doesn't take a whole lot of money to keep a, a bad idea alive. The marketplace for ideas is pretty thinly financed, and it really only takes a handful of of, uh, of malign billionaires to keep bad ideas uh, in circulation. Now, there there are other things that go on. I, mean, there is, uh, I do talk in Argument with Zombies uh, some about uh, the problems of the economics profession mm-hmm. and uh, the um, and particularly the the confusion in response to the financial crisis, which in that case has at least initially very little to do with class interests, at least in any direct sense. It had to do with the fact that economics has this beautiful model of how the world works. Confusing beauty with truth, as you put it. That's right. Yeah. And uh, Econ 101, we teach our students. I teach. I mean, you got to do this. If you want to have a textbook that people will use, you have to put the other stuff in as uh, – but it's more complicated than that. But first, you have to teach this simple model in which everybody is rational and in which markets all work the way they're supposed to. And in that model, a minimum wage increase should cut jobs. In that model, a, uh, uh, the incentive effects of anti-poverty programs should be something that you need to worry about. Um, and there is this bias towards going with this beautiful, simple story, uh, which as it happens in most cases ends up also dovetailing with the bias towards saying things that makes billionaire donors happy. Yes. Um, but it's not all pure mercenary stuff. It is a, it is a problem also of, of the sort of inherent bias of, of economics, which I, I don't have great answers for except to say be aware of it, that uh, beautiful models are not necessarily true. Can I just make a suggestion? And, and that is since most students don't get any further than Econ 101, starting with these beautiful models based on what you call in your book silly assumptions might be part of the reason why these zombies are so difficult to kill? Uh, it's a little bit. Although, again, the tax cuts pay for themselves thing, which is the most important consequential zombie in U.S. politics, doesn't come out of Econ 101. There, the possibility... That, a ta- that taxes could be so high that cutting them would actually increase revenue is there, but it's nothing. There's nothing about the structure of Econ 101 that that makes you think that that's likely. So um, you don't want to blame it too much. But some of us do uh, talk about this quite a lot uh, and trying to figure out, uh, even for you know, center-left economists, uh, what we tend to do is. You start with uh, with this idealized model of a perfect economy, and then then you introduce some flaws and say, okay, let's let's talk about what realistic ways in which the world isn't like that. And it would probably uh, there there would be a lot to be said for having for starting with the flaws built into your account from the beginning, except that 
no one has figured out how to do that in a way that's easily teachable. Right. Uh, and I guess we we've all I, I had a discussion on one of the one of our my book discussions for arguing with zombies. We we had a discussion with Heather Boucher at, yeah. at Center for Equitable Growth. She and I were basically talking about what can we what can we do to change this because we we know that this is a, a bias that's kind of inherent in the way we we teach economics. But we don't have neither of us I think had a great alternative except to say got to keep on looking for it. One of the things yeah. that's very frustrating for us is that essentially what we're trying to do a lot of our what we're trying to do is synthesize the. Uh, complexity economics, evolutionary economics, yeah. all of that latest science into a coherent narrative. And that's a hard thing to do to simplify down to a beautiful, elegant story about how the, the way the economy works compared to the beautiful, simplified, neoclassical, neoliberal story that dominates and keeps these zombies alive. Yeah, I, th I do want to come back and just say that look, the the, the most destructive zombies out there—the tax cuts, pay for themselves, climate change—is a myth. Those don't come out of Econ 101. Yeah. those are. I mean, Econ 101 it says it talks a lot about about externalities and and pollution and the need for government policy to correct it. So this is not. Uh, there's plenty to blame Econ 101 for, but not everything is coming out of that. But I understand where, where you guys are coming from. And uh, it's something I've wrestled with a, a lot over the years. And I think there, everyone else who's aware has done this. The, uh, the trouble we, we do have, so we, behavioral economics, uh, how do people really act as opposed to uh, this idealized uh, optimizing homo economicus um, is – Anybody who isn't an idiot uh, subscribes <laughs> to that. Yeah. That of course, you know, they no nobody nobody is that optimizing a person that 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 we model in the textbooks. Um, but what do people do, and what do people do in real world situations? Um, the answer is, oh, it's kind of it's complicated because people are not completely stupid, but they're not perfectly smart either, and the. Uh, and trying to model people who are imperfectly smart, you end up with a kind of a collection of stories and cases, uh, which if you're a good economist, you try to apply to the you know, whatever the problem is at hand uh, as best you can. But it's if you're trying to teach uh, you know, 3,000 students at a community college some basic economics, we're uh, saying, well, this is all nuanced and complicated is actually – a little problematic. Let me just zoom in on something. So if you assume that the economy truly is an equilibrium Pareto optimal system, then as neoclassical economics assumes, then for sure when you raise wages, it kills jobs because it moves the economy away from equilibrium, which is why when I suggested to my center-left economic professor friends that we, we were going to do the $15 minimum wage, they thought I had lost my mind. All of these folks were absolutely convinced that Seattle, Washington was going to slide into the ocean if we did this policy. But here's the thing. If you understand the system in a completely different way, essentially as an ecology, which is what it is, then there is no such inverse relationship between wages and jobs, that, that businesses effectively eat the wages of workers, which is why when workers' wages rise, 
so does business activity and jobs. And it was that perspective on how a human economy works that gave us, certainly me, confidence that the policy would work out, which is why I think coming back to Goldie's question about these models, why we're so nervous that if we don't kill these models, we can't get beyond the zombie ideas. Does that make sense? It does. The trouble is uh, I, I tried to do evolutionary economics for a bit a ways back and found it not as helpful and clarifying my own thought as I hoped it would be. And okay. uh, it's, it's not, it's not as, as easy. And by the way, if you actually look at what evolutionary theorists do, look at it, uh, actually read what they write. It, a lot of it ends up looking an awful lot like Econ 101. So um, <laughs> the, uh, look up John Maynard Smith with a name like that should have been an economist and, and his <laughs> models. And they look a hell of a lot like, like economics. Um, okay. Interesting. Put this way, I'll, I'll say this in defense, but at least me and some of my colleagues, we're not as, as narrow-minded uh, as, as you might think. We're, it would be a lot easier if it were just you know, sort of ingrained prejudices. But there's a, there, there were reasons why the field gravitated towards this kind of perfect markets paradigm. And while that paradigm is clearly falls way short, it's not so easy to replace it. And, right. and I would say that if your model tells you that nothing, that wages never matter for employment, then that's got to be wrong, too. No, of course. Um, I, I just did a, a few days of, of book promotion in Spain, and I get a little grief from the Spanish left. For some reason, I'm popular in Spain. God knows why. I don't speak a word of language. But the, uh, uh, I got some grief for saying at the height of their crisis that the Spanish wages needed to come down relative to German wages to make Spain more competitive. Uh, as long as they were on the euro, that was going to have to happen. And uh they would say, well, you know, the, the wages are not that high and it's hard to live on them, which is true. But the trouble was, given the realities of, of how international business works, Spain just needed to be a, a cost competitive place to make stuff. And that happened. They actually had over a number of years uh, through grinding, suffering and high unemployment. Right. Spanish wages were slowly ground down. They they didn't fall much, but they, they didn't rise uh, while German wages rose. And uh, now Spain has a thriving automobile industry because it's got a labor cost advantage. Uh, so it, it's not that this stuff is all nonsense. No, of it, course not. It just, uh, it's just when, when it's realizing that, that the orthodoxy, that the Econ 101 basically don't believe it unless there's evidence. And sometimes the evidence will tell you that in, in the relevant case, it's just not at all right. So um, let's get to uh, the positive side of what we can do here. Obviously, you've been one of the most uh, effective uh, economic communicators over the past 20 years. How do we contribute towards your fight against zombies? How do we kill some zombies? You never, I mean, the whole point about zombies is actually you really can never fully kill them. Uh, right. They're, they're uh, unless we actually were able to eliminate billionaires, which uh, which is not in the cards even um, no matter uh, who becomes president, there's always going to be a big money uh, to support some dumb stuff. And there's always going to be the, uh, some of the problem of what I call very serious people who, uh, who go for something like, well, we must control our debt, which sounds serious uh, because everybody else who sounds serious is saying it. Um, so those things never go away. What you can try to do is loosen the grip of zombie ideas on people who are – 
in some position of influence and with with at least uh, moderately progressive values. So I'm hoping if there's a, a next Democratic uh, president uh, that he or she will will not uh, listen to the people who say, and well, now you have to balance the budget. Yes, uh, Republicans right. have, have you know <laughs> that, that they will instead yeah. say, okay, you know, government borrowing is not that bad a thing. The but we should use it for good stuff. We should use it for infrastructure, not and tax cuts for rich people. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and and I think that there's some chance of doing that. I mean, the the uh, you know, Obamacare, even though it's 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 a Rube Goldberg device, it's a it's a compromise scheme and and more complex by far than than you would want it to be. But got 20 million people health insurance, um, and that came out of a a long campaign, I think, on the part of. Uh, of progressive economists, progressive health economists saying, look, there's a lot we can do here. It's not actually all that expensive to provide health care because the, the uninsured in America are mostly uh, young adults uh, who are actually pretty cheap. Uh, they don't have they don't usually require triple cardiac bypass operations. Um, and there are some fairly uh, straightforward, even if Technically, a little bit complicated things we can do to to get these people under the uh, under the insurance uh, umbrella. So, as I say, I'm arguing with zombies, not trying to kill them because I, I know that, that they never really do die. But you you can try to um, argue with them enough so that you can get good stuff done. So, our view on zombies, because we are in violent agreement with your analysis, is that you cannot kill the zombie ideas because. These ideas are not propagated because they're true. They're propagated because they are effective. They advance the interests of the people who are propagating them. But what you can do, I think, and what we've tried to do, is you can inoculate people against these zombie ideas by showing them that the people saying them aren't saying them because they're true. They're saying them because they're effective, that these things sound like economics, but are actually intimidation tactics masquerading as economics and convert fear into anger. That's what I say right in the beginning of arguing with zombies. Among my principles for writing is uh, be honest about dishonesty. Don't, right. don't pretend that we're having good faith discussions when we're not. There are good faith discussions. Yeah. Ben Bernanke and I disagree about the effectiveness of quantitative easing and forget about it. You know, that's a, it's not, not, not worth discussing on the op-ed page. But nobody really believes, uh, scare quotes around believes, in, uh, in the magic power of tax cuts. That's all about serving interests. And you can document. You can look at, right. at who does it and where it comes from. It's, it's like climate change denial. We, uh, I guess it's Naomi Oreskes who's done this, uh, of, of scientists who have written skeptical client pieces. How many have received funding from fossil fuel interests? And the answer is all of them. Right. Uh, so, uh, uh, yeah, you can you can make that case. And I think it, it can be effective. I think if you can make the the case that something is being argued that it, that the argument is not being made in good faith, then it helps. It helps you make the case against it. And whenever somebody says that policy will harm the very people it's intended to help, then, you know, they're scamming you. <laughs> So, so uh... well, once in a very long while it happens, but it's, uh, but, but very often not. That's right. There are people who are um, people who have sounded, you know, centrist in the past, who 
have changed their minds and uh, showing that they were in fact uh, in good faith. Again, one of my, I've been doing, you know, I've been book touring for our heat with zombies and, and I get, I get pretty interesting questions from the audience. And, but one of them was, um, why do some people say that the deaths don't matter? And why is that so very different from what, say, Larry Summers is saying? And I say, have you looked at what Larry's been writing lately? Uh, he's he's actually been uh, just finished a, a big paper that concluded it's time for Washington to put aside its debt obsession and, and focus on more important things. Yeah. So there are some people who can be persuaded by evidence. And um, one way to, to look at the Obama years is to, to is to focus on all the things that you hoped might happen that didn't. But another is to say, hey, we got we got a big expansion of health insurance. We got some substantial tax increases on the on the on the one percent. Uh, we got some substantial investments in green energy that are actually paying off now in the in the boom in solar and wind power. So there's glass glass half, half empty, glass half full. But there are, but certainly the glasses aren't totally empty. Can I ask you? I'm just curious. It's it's a, it's a little bit of a personal question. My, my father was a psychiatrist, and psychiatrists are very much alike. I once read a book, Children of Psychiatrists, and it was <laughs> amazing how our experiences were similar. And the thesis of the book was asking the question, does psychiatry create a certain type of person or does it attract a certain type of person? And I've noticed this with economists as well. Is there something about economics that attracts a certain type of person to the field? Or does the field of economics create a certain type of person? Oh, probably both. Let's put it this way. They, I, I'm sitting here at the Stone Center for the Study of Socioeconomic Inequality, which is actually genuinely interdisciplinary. And we, we talk uh, to you know, cross sociology of poli-sci economics, and, and we have invited speakers from all kinds of people who do ethnology and so on. And I listened to what to some of their research, a lot of which involves just going on and talking to people uh, in in detail about their lives. And I think to myself, I could never do that. <laughs> so it's kind of uh, it's certainly uh, you know, someone, uh, I think economics on average probably attracts people who are more comfortable with spreadsheets than with one-on-one interviews. Um, it's going to attract people who are, who do uh, have a, a, a little bit of a depersonalized view <laughs> of the world. Um, and then there, there's uh, also a, uh, to the extent that the field was for a long time, pretty dominated by models of, of how great markets are. Uh, I think economics attracted people who were somewhat on average, uh, somewhat certainly more conservative than other social sciences. Now it turns out that most of the uh, well-known uh, economists in my generation, I would say in the next generation uh, behind, are are in fact uh, center to left of center. But uh, that wasn't always true, and this probably certainly relative to to sociologists, we're we're a pretty conservative profession. So sure, there's there's and and then maybe 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 if if you spend a lot of time with models of in which people act always act in their self interest, you start to think that that's what people are actually like. Right, it, a lot of white men too. <laughs> um, that's changing fast. It is changing but, fast. Yeah, the field's gotten more diverse. Uh, the last you know, recent, if you if you track you know, winners of the Clark Medal, which is the uh, Best economist under forty medal. Uh, it, that's gotten 
substantially more diverse. We're getting more women getting that now, but it's definitely true. Uh, so we have one final question for you, and that is, why do you do the work that you do? I think basically in the hope that it, I can make a little bit of a difference. You know, I don't have grandiose visions. One of the things that uh, kind of an interesting thing, you, you know, I've, I, I somehow or other ended up with the the best journalistic spot in the world, uh, up at page of the New York Times, and uh, and my ability to move public opinion is still almost I invisible. You can uh, you can at best nudge things a little bit. Uh, so, but it can make some difference. I, I think I played some role in us not privatizing Social Security, which is the first thing I talk about in arguing with zombies. I think I played some role in us getting even an incomplete uh, health care reform. Uh, I argued against destructive austerity policies, and unfortunately, I think we kind of lost that argument, but it was the right argument to make. So if you can make a little bit of a difference, especially in something, you know, this economics is about society, and if you can make society even infinitesimally better than, than you've justified your existence. That's a fantastic answer. Uh, we think you're making a difference. Yeah. Uh, you're helping us. All right. Good luck. Thank you, sir. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. So, Nick, what do you think? Did we kill any zombies today? I don't know. Um, it's great to, of course, talk to a fellow traveler who has right. devoted his life to pushing back against these terrible ideas and and there was a lot in obviously Paul's book that I completely agree with, uh, but you know there was some stuff that he said and that he's written that I don't agree with because I you know I think that you and I you and I both think that it's the underlying models that are right. as problematic as the ideas themselves. And I think this gets to if we have a quibble with the book, it's um, that he doesn't he doesn't reject modeling. I mean, he he, well, <laughs> he the neoclassical the modeling. neoclassical yeah. modeling. He 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 talks about the limitations. He talks about where it goes wrong in the book. He he says they're based on silly assumptions, and we agree with all that. Uh, our take is that actually it's the models that the and these silly assumptions of orthodox economics that uh, that that's the virus that's actually creating the zombies. Yeah. Uh, and and what we've been trying to do on this podcast and in the work in our office is uh, uh, develop a vaccine. Yeah, right. Or, and kill the virus. Right. And so, look, if you're a economics professor and your job is to teach economics, I'm deeply sympathetic right. to needing to hang on to even, you know, like stuff that you know isn't altogether true in the absence of all, an alternative, and I know enough about the landscape to know that there isn't a ready alternative, although the core curriculum that's being developed at INET is coming along, and that, right. that will be a thing that teachers of economics can use. Uh, but, you know, the truth is that it is from things like seeing a human economy as an equilibrium system that these zombies ideas Proceed right. right. That that is where the virus comes from, and that's and, and, and it, it's the and the virus. I think 
can be thought of as the deep intuitions of the people who ply the trade. If you're teaching any 101 course, you're going to have to simplify things a Correct. bit, right? There, I mean, that's just the base. It's that's why it's 101. Yeah, right. <laughs> right. So you, so I, I understand the need to simplify concepts for a 101 audience. The the problem is that when you have these models that are based on things like Homo economicus, because these models basically simplify and assume you will generally behave yeah. rationally and have yeah. perfect information and all that. It, it, and be, and be self-regarding. And be, like, right, self-regarding, selfish. I mean, we've seen what you end up with is indoctrinating these uh, impressionable 101 students yeah. with ideas that are wrong and that you understand are wrong, uh, that do not hold up in the real world and that your colleagues understand do not hold up in the real world. But these freshmen and sophomores taking these uh, classes, right. uh, they don't understand that because they don't move on to the next level. I'll tell you, one of the things that I found most striking was when near the end when we talked about what type of people the field attracts. And and he <laughs> he acknowledges <laughs> somewhat conservative, it's somewhat conservative field. Um, and, you know, I think that you cannot discount the sociological reality that the vast majority of economists are rich white dudes who work largely at the behest of other rich white dudes. <laughs> and the biases lean in that direction. Right. And that's how you wound up with an, a profession which will obsess over the possibility that raising wages for poor people will kill jobs. But has, to my knowledge, never once done a study of the job killing effects of a few people amassing great wealth. It is a remarkable, again, sociological phenomenon right. that, that there is such attention paid to the risks of increasing wages for poor people, but no attention paid to the job risks of letting a few people amass enormous amounts of income and wealth. I mean, you can do the math right. very, very easily if you just assumed that instead of a 23% share of income for rich people, uh, we continued to get the 8% share that we had in 1980. And there'd be an extra $2.5 trillion to, yeah. to spread around the rest of the economy. Think that, we'd might have do, more... that might do something to the demand side. Yeah, yeah a little bit. Maybe right? a little bit more than that tax cut. Yeah, exactly. So, but, you know, but, you know, these are obvious questions that should be asked. There's a clear narrative benefit to exploring it. But nobody is in the profession, at least that I know of. And that speaks to the fundamental biases of both the people and the ways of understanding the field embedded in neoclassical economics. And so anyway, just fascinating conversation and super, obviously, um, really, we're very fortunate to get right. Paul to spend so much time with us chatting about uh, this stuff. Yeah, we need we need more zombie fighters. Yep. And uh, as uh, uh, Paul Krugman points out, we can't stop the fight because that's the thing about zombies. They, they don't die. They don't. They never die. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. 
Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.